Welcome to Shanghai Zhan, a raw and lively, regular debate about China tech, advertising, creativity, platforms, and the intersection of it all. Join us each session for timely and relevant discussions on all things China marketing. We will be joined by an entire spectrum of China experts. You can learn more about Shanghai John at our website, johnstation.com. Coming to you directly from the city of Shanghai, I'm Bryce Whitwam, and I'm Ali Kazmi. And in today's episode, we have special COVID lockdown in Shanghai episode. A lot of people have been writing to me, Ali, and asking me what's happened to the podcast. It has been three weeks since we've dropped our last episode. It's really due to community lockdowns, and that we haven't been able to record any new shows. Fortunately, we have two more episodes lined up this week, so we'll get back on track. But today. We thought we'd talk about the biggest story in Shanghai, and that's, of course, is the lockdown, which is now close to three plus weeks old. For those living outside of Shanghai, the city has been ravaged by a series of positive COVID cases, now recording two thousand six hundred thirty-three new asymptomatic and symptomatic cases in the city. That was yesterday, making it the Highest number behind Jilin Province, which has exceeded the ten thousand mark. As a result, the Shanghai city government has elected to avoid a fourteen-day total lockdown, which they did in Shenzhen, and instead have opted for short-term city district and even separate building compound closures. In some neighborhoods, including mine, one compound is locked down while the other one is free to roam. Very strange,、uh, but there's few places open. So if you can roam, there's no place to go. Most restaurants are open, but for takeout only. City streets are deserted, and everyone is working from home. We've also seen a multiple days of panic buying, and unless you like corn, most of the markets are bare of green vegetables. And as long as asymptomatic cases increase, especially with super contagious Omicron BA two in China now. There seems to be no end in sight. We're recording this podcast on Sunday, March twenty seventh, and there are numerous Shanghai districts, including Pudong, Minhang, Putuo, that remain as troubled zones. So, to discuss this, we have a panel of experts. Ali, well, we have a Chinese historian and a sustainability expert. Perfect for the occasion. Let me introduce our guests. We have Andrew Field, is an associate professor of Chinese history at Duke Quinshan University, based in the city of Quinshan. Which is just outside of Shanghai. Doctor Field has lived consistently in Shanghai since 2008 and is a noted expert on the city's jazz scene. He is the author of Shanghai's Dancing World: Cabaret Culture and Urban Politics, 1919 to 1954, and Shanghai Nightscapes: A Nocturnal Biography of a Global City. I will post the links to Professor Field's books in the show notes. And we have our returning guest, friend of the podcast, Ali. Richard Brubaker, who is the founder and managing director of sustainability consultancy Collective Responsibility, he's also the founder of Hands On China, as well as an adjunct professor of sustainability and social innovation at Southern Methodist University. Andy, Richard, welcome to Shanghai Zan. Thank you. Good to be back. So, and before we get started, we'd like to remind everyone who is listening that if you like the show, please give us a five-star review on your favorite platform, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Both have places to leave reviews. It's very important. And starting、uh, last month, if you donate five U.S. dollars, only five dollars to support the show on Patreon, 
you can receive some cool, cool stuff, including a Shanghai Don branded sticker. And for $10 a month, you can get a branded coffee mug. Those mugs are super cool. Right, Ali? They're amazing. They're amazing. Yes. So cool gear. And you also support the show. So with that in mind, let's talk about lockdowns and COVID. Richard, as I mentioned in the introduction, we've seen that the government is attacking the recent outbreak in phases. Uh, could you give us a quick overview of what those are and where we've been so far? Yeah, I mean, so if you look at Shanghai as a city, uh, it's got you know a range of districts in size um, across the city that basically have been going through various stages of lockdown. Uh, I think they call it dynamic um, and not COVID zero anymore. Dynamic uh, zero is what they're aiming for. And it's just to kind of reduce the spread, the speed of spread, and hopefully bring us back down to zero at some point. Um, I'm in the Shuhei district, which was ground zero for where it all started. You know, the Huanting Hotel had a bunch of cases coming from Hong Kong that spread out through the healthcare workers. And now we've got, I think you mentioned 2,700 cases, roughly, give or take today, um, in the city. Now, my own compound was locked down. Honestly, I don't even know what day it is because it just totally threw my week off. Uh, We were locked down for about six days. Initially, it was supposed to be a 48-hour lockdown. And then that just continued to get um, pushed back. And that's a pretty common thing for the Shuhei District, Jing'an District, and some others where compounds of seven to eight buildings, the front gate is shut. And the great part is that you can basically work out how severe the outbreak is in that compound based on the walls or the way that they block the gate. So if they just shut the gate, they're just shutting everyone up just like everybody, like they were told to do and doing some testing. But if you see the blue walls come out or you see the bunnies coming in, you know, you got a positive case. And I think the city is, is effectively shut down, as was mentioned earlier, restaurants, all the commercial buildings are basically shut down and people are staying home. Uh, I think overall, you know, people have been quite accepting of what's happening, although there's a lot of grumbles about like, when am I getting out? And so we're starting to see that a little bit here. A little bigger picture, I guess the question is, will this work? You know, we got 3,000 cases. They've been going up every single day. Uh, the asymptomatics in particular have been going up every single day. And now we're starting to see a creep in the symptoms. And this is a very old city where you have about 20% over the age of 85 and about 30%, 35% over the age of 65, of which only about half are vaccinated. So the concern is that if this spreads, that the level of serious illness will spread. Um, as mentioned, they dis- they decided to scrap the idea of a two-week lockdown, even though the rumors sent all the elderly to the wealth markets to buy food, um, and in part because they're worried about the economic impacts of a, an actual lockdown that they were able to perform in 2020, that Shenzhen is still kind of under after 25 days, and which Shenyang and some others are going through. They're, they're much more concerned about the economic impacts now of lockdowns, which is telling against the potential spread and the reality that if you had a real spread like Ho Chi Minh City saw or Singapore saw or America saw, um, you could be down six months. And so it's you can see they're really trying to find that line that allows them to stay open but keep the spread contained, believing that they can get back to zero somehow. Interesting. And Andy, you're out in Quinshan. Uh, what have you experienced there? Is it is it similar or is it a completely different thing than what Richard just described? Well, first of all, just to uh, orient your audience, because they may not know the geography here, uh, Quinshan is a small size city, small by China standards, meaning around 2 million people. And it's located outside of the, outside of, um, the boundaries of Shanghai. So it's outside of the Shanghai municipality. We're we're actually in the Suzhou municipality. So Suzhou is the next uh, somewhat large city to our uh, west. 
Shanghai is to our east. So we're kind of wedged in between Suzhou and Shanghai. Kunshan has been definitely affected by the latest outbreaks, as has this entire region. Actually, even before the uh, big outbreak in Shanghai, there was an outbreak in Suzhou uh, last month, and a lot of my colleagues were quarantined for a while, not because of positive cases, but just uh, to, uh, you know, uh, because they lived in a neighborhood or a district that was affected. Then, pretty soon after that, uh, we started to see the outbreaks in Shanghai. I was there for the weekend of March 5th and 6th um, because my family's in Shanghai, so I normally would go back every weekend. Um, it's about an hour's drive or a little over an hour from Quinshan to, uh, to Shanghai. And I, I, I'm a, I drive a car. I'm one of those crazy people who drives a car here in China. So normally I would be going back to Shanghai every weekend. So I went back that weekend. There were some uh, cases, uh, a, a few cases at that point. Um, I was assured that if I had, if I had a negative COVID test within 48 hours, I would be okay coming back here and going back to my university, uh, which is Duke Quinshan University. Sure enough, I got tested, uh, used that to get back on campus. I was on campus for a few days. And then all of a sudden, um, just as I was gearing up to teach a a course, a special course that I teach, uh, not related to my field. I was teaching a very short course on songwriting uh, to the students. And just as I was preparing to, to uh, get back on campus to teach that, I was told that I couldn't get back on campus because then all of a sudden the rules have changed. So now um, if you had been to Shanghai within two weeks, you could not uh, get back on campus. Not only that, but I was actually barred from leaving my compound. I was in a car. It was Monday morning. I was in my car getting ready to to head over to the campus and uh, went to the exit gate of my uh, residential compound. And I was told that because I have a Shanghai star, which means that on my travel code, right, we all have these travel codes now, uh, because I have a Shanghai star on my travel code, that meant that I had been in Shanghai within 14 days. I could not leave the compound. I was forced to stay in my residential compound for another seven days until until my star went away. So uh, fortunately, my residential compound is pretty big. So I was able to walk around and and still um, get outside and walk around my neighborhood. But it, but it was quite uh, frustrating not to be able to leave the compound. And I think the same was true for everybody who was affected by this new uh, rule. Um, there was a lot of talk on WeChat groups and a lot of what you'd expect, typical grumbling of people. Um, but everybody went along with it. And then since then, we've had uh, basically tests every uh, 48 hours in the community which is quite amazing. They've actually set up a testing line to deliver the nucleic acid test every 48 hours in our residential compound. And then those test results go into go on your QR code, which is your health code. So you get a record then of all your negative COVID tests. Well, eventually I was able to, uh, to get out of the compound and get back onto the university campus um, so since then, I have not gone back to Shanghai. It just doesn't make sense for me to go back at this point 
into a medium risk zone, um, in which case I would be barred from leaving my compound were I to come back to Kunshan again. They've switched gears, right? Before we were doing PCR tests, which we'd line up, they would announce the the compounds would announce that there would be tests at a particular time. And then you go and line up outside for the test. Interestingly enough, in my compound, they only did throats. Why are they moving from a PCR test system to an antigen test system? Um, as far as I know, we haven't done that yet here in Quinchan, uh, or at least I haven't heard about the antigen tests taking place here in Quinchan yet. Well, I, I'll just go back to like you were talking about how they were doing the mass testing um, down. Like we we would just go downstairs and they'd swab our throat, uh, twenty people to a vial. I mean, they were just trying to figure out how widespread this was at a community level. They weren't trying to go for individuals in part because they didn't have the the capacity of beds to peel all these people out. So if they found that in the compound there was a case, they could always come back and then do individual one by one. And there was actually some great cases where. Uh, just down the street from us, there was a community that spent, they did like a 48 plus a 48 plus a 48. And the government said, okay, you're free to go. And one person went, what tests? And then they shut them back down for another 48 so they could retest everybody again. Um, I think the antigen test is kind of to get around a little bit of the the logistical nightmare because they don't have enough staff at the community level to implement all these tests across the city, N- much less given the number of cities that are exploding right now to be able to continue this process. They need to find a way to reduce the government's burden in terms of the the actual people going to compounds. But then also they were crashing the, the systems that they've been building for the last two years where you would go and get your test results. So they were uploading the results and you couldn't even get your results because it was just kept crashing. So by doing the antigen test at home and then you send a picture of it back to your management committee, you circumnavigate all those logistical challenges that the government faces. I mean, I guess on some level, you personalize what you know whether or not you had it or have it at the time. And so you're more likely to stay home. But I, again, like, I'm not sure it's a better outcome understanding how widespread this is. I think that's the, the balance they're trying to find. Also, too, when they've been doing the tests, I don't know if it's been with your case, uh, I can post a a link of this. They've been giving us stickers for each time that we actually get a test. Since I live near the Hongqiao Railway Station in a small town called Xujing, so uh, it's a part of the Shanghai city. And every time you get a test, you get one of these, I, I can't describe the illustration style. It's kind of like a, a Teletubbies kind of style. And the lead character has a has a t-shirt on that in the style of I love New York, it says I love XJ, which is I love Xujing. If you've ever been to Xujing, you know that there's nothing to love there. It's a small little town. You can't find parking. The restaurants there suck. And I think the only reason to go to Xujing Town is to buy like a low-end Huawei phone. I don't really know why. So I don't know why he's loving Xujing so much. Originally, the stickers were meant to be a way to enable you to get around. So they told us to put the stickers on our phone case in case that we wanted to move. And so if you show the guards that you've gotten these stickers, then you could get into offices or other compounds. But I have tried that. And unfortunately, it has failed. (laughs) They won't recognize it. They still go back to the codes and the QR codes and all the tests and things on your phone. 
But now with the antigen test, you can see I've got the antigen test sticker there. There's obviously completely honesty policy now. They're going from this previous method where you went through this whole, you, you scanned your code so that your data was put into the system. But now it just seems that you're just getting stickers and stuff. I, I don't know what's happened. Well, I mean, that's, that's part of the fascinating part is that they have all these systems in place that we've all heard about outside when it comes to social credit and cameras that follow you and apps that track you, but they're down to stickers. Uh, and not every, like in Shuhei, we don't get, we don't get stickers, you know, uh, Jing'an, I don't know if they get them or not, but they've now become collectibles, which is really interesting. So now people are selling them and they're mailing them to people for money. I get like, it's very interesting just from a process perspective, a systems process perspective to, to kind of think about how this is working. And it's very human driven. It's very dependent upon, you know, the three stamps, the three layers of paper that we used to, you know, when we'd go buy something at the Kapinski in Beijing, like you have to go across the, the department store and get three different stamps before you could take your guide home. It's no different than some of these cases. Um, you know, it's just, it's it's incredible to think that how much progress is made, but also how rudimentary the system can be in a state of crisis, which is, I think, what what we're seeing. They're, they're really, I'm not saying they were caught off guard, but they, they, I don't think they understood how quick or they didn't realize how quick it would spread and how many different places. And it's a huge test for their the work that they've been doing for the last two years to prepare for this. Ali, what do you think about that? What's the reason that Richard just mentioned the, the lag in the in the tech? Is, is that understandable or, or is it just that the system's not set up for this type of situation? Before I get into that question, I just wanted to talk about, or I just wanted to kind of talk about a little bit um, on the antigen test as well. Because being able to kind of mobilize and distribute the number of antigen tests that they've distributed in Shanghai within a short period of time across multiple districts and having everyone at 3 p.m. on the same day receive a test kit report back on WeChat. I mean, for me, that's just an indication of how organized the city government is. But it also means that that the amount of planning and organization that has gone into that moment, on, you know, is, is significant, or it's unlikely that that's, you know, this is something that was planned, you know, days or hours prior to the event. It's likely that this was already planned. And, you know, and, and you know, producing the number of antigen tests, making sure that they're distributed, making sure that um, all the community leaders orchestrate and all the way down to a compound level where the management office is, you know, has created those WeChat groups and has announced to residents in that in that community to, to go to the lobby of that building and collect their tests. That that requires significant uh, orchestration and organization. So the the thought really is is and and it kind of speaks to the the technology question a little bit as well. Is that perhaps this is China? Or this at least is Shanghai passing on the responsibility of allowing its citizens to self-manage and and kind of just self uh, self-control the the spread of of any future variants of of COVID. And I think it could be that they've come to a realization that that it's very difficult to control the spread, and and ultimately you know Shanghai and the country will have to open up. And in order for them to do that, the control is one at an individual level and after that at a community level and and therefore the dynamic uh, COVID policy that they have. On the technology side, I mean, we've seen the tech uh, evolve and improve within a very short period of time over the last couple of months. And ever since the first outbreak, I mean, we've seen travel within China, um, within uh, metropolises within China being 
fairly well organized at airports, at mass transit, entry points and exit points, etc. So I'm really excited with the way food delivery continues to work, the way that delivery of anything that you've ordered over e-commerce continues to get delivered within time. I'm really excited about the way residences have organized themselves so that they can receive parcels in the those parcels are kind of organized around buildings uh, within that community. But beyond that, like my wife recently shared with me, and I always call on her a number of times every time I do a podcast, but in this one, she shared with me a mini program. We live in the Luan district. And what I liked about this, this application was that you can zoom in and zoom out of different districts and neighborhoods and see the number of people that are asymptomatic or symptomatic with, um, with Omicron Corona. But at the same time, you know, you can also kind of filter out against the number of days certain communities have been quarantined. I think getting that type of individual statistic that you will get through the antigen test will just make it a little bit easier for municipal government and the community leaders kind of manage and turn on and turn off quarantines. How do you think the communities in the last three weeks have been handling this? I think that the overall responses mixed. So I've been following, I belong to many different WeChat groups, both here in Quinchan, uh, including groups that my colleagues have formed, um, as well as the community that I live in, and uh, which is uh, almost completely Chinese. And then I have also WeChat groups from Shanghai, from friends, uh, but also the community that I live in with my family in Shanghai. So I've seen a pretty wide range of responses. And of course, there's a lot of active discussion about the the various aspects of this current campaign to, uh, if not eliminate, at least uh, bring down the numbers. I think, you know, there's been a, a wide range of comments and emotions, uh, including some confusion, some frustration, uh, but also a lot of humor. Uh, I think people have also been dealing with this situation with a lot of uh, maybe dry humor. And I think between Chinese and foreigners, I I think probably the foreigners who are maybe the most affected are the ones who don't speak Chinese and can feel quite bewildered, uh, especially people who have not been here for very long uh, in China. I mean, I, I can imagine how bewildering that must must feel to be going through all of this at once um, and all of the restrictions um, that, you know, I guess some of us have kind of come to take for granted over the years. Amongst the Chinese, you know, the probably the, the biggest grumble that I've heard so far is that people are losing money. You know, a lot of people who uh, aren't able to, uh, to be uh, employed you know, I happen to be in a fortunate group of people that, that we can still do our jobs online. We can still teach online, uh, which is quite an amazing thing. Uh, certainly not the ideal, um, but there are those who really can't continue to do their jobs uh, online. I'll, I'll speak to the Chinese side first. I'm actually quite shocked at the lack of patience that exists like lately. I think everyone played ball up until about a month, month and a half ago. And now there's a high level of real concern that this could really grow beyond, you know, and become a, a, a countrywide issue. Like, I think they're generally concerned with people I talk to, like, they're really worried about if they find a case in their compound, they're going to be locked down. And the biggest problem I would say that, bo- that creates the water boiling over is the lack of transparency in communications and just 
the two plus two plus two, like one of the best internet memes I saw was, you know, Shanghai's quarantine is two plus 12, day one, two plus 12, day two, two plus 12, day three, two plus 12. And at day five, it just said two plus two plus two plus two plus two plus two plus two. And it got millions of views on TikTok. Um, and I think that's the biggest concern. I also look at the human behavior of this. Okay, if, if, if it was all going well and fine and people were really trusting in the process, why do the elderly rush out of their homes 1130 at night feeling that a government lockdown was coming and go hoard two to four weeks of vegetables until 2 a.m.? To this day, there's still a lack of vegetables in my neighborhood because the elderly get up before everybody else and go and clean house. And that's a sign that people are really, they're uncertain. I'm not saying that anyone's doing a good or a bad job, but there's a lot of fear about when you get locked in, how long will you be there? Why are you being locked in? Because a lot of these compounds don't even have anyone that's showing positive even after seven tests. Why are we locked in? And I think then we get into the business. A lot of businesses have been struggling. You know, we're in the three, what, four years of the trade war. Uh, we're in the two years of COVID and they've cut off a lot of the international destinations for people coming in or going out. So there's a lot of business uncertainty now. And you can even see that in how the Chinese government has attacked the, the VAT restructuring uh, in the last week. They reduced that VAT restructuring because they need to get the exports going again, because that has become a huge driver of their economy again after the real estate and infrastructure booms really fell through. So this is the challenge. And I, I'm, you know, again, like I don't think any of us have a crystal ball or know what's going to happen. I would argue that with the best of intentions, this is still one of the most they've painted themselves in the corner with never dry paint on the economy, on COVID, on a lot of things. And they're trying to find the path forward. But a lot of people feel uncertain about that. In terms of boiling points, look at Shenzhen. You, you have full on people trying to climb walls and tear down walls and fighting with the bunnies and fighting with the police over getting out like it's been 25 days. And I don't think, even though, Ali, you kind of alluded to this, I don't know how many cycles of this dynamic shutdown my compound would take before people started trying to really kind of get out. I saw a great video of an old guy trying to get his bicycle out of the comp, not out of the compound, but out of one in Pudong. And it was just, he kept trying every little thing and there's always a guard trying to stop and they finally took his bicycle away. And that's a Chinese side. I think like they've believed in their system. They've believed in their government for a long time, but now they're just the uncertainty. Now, when it comes to foreigners, it's very different. And I've not had, I think the foreigners benefit from knowing what happened in their countries in a time of mismanaged COVID, which is, all hell broke loose and it took them 18 months to recover. And thank God we've been in China. Thank you. But to your point about the foreigners that don't speak Chinese, or even those that do, the main sticking point is really the lack of information and the uncertainty around when will they get out? What tests needs to be done? What about the impact of business? But the last three days, the big conversation has been if these schools stay closed through the summer, and there's a risk of it staying closed in September, we're out of here. And I've heard this from five or six families where they will leave China if the international schools are closed in September because we're not paying $50,000 for virtual education. And you're going to see a much larger exodus of foreigners this summer than I think they would have had otherwise. And I've talked to one family yesterday. They're like, we're just going to go away for six to nine months and see what happens. I'm sure they're not the only one. And I'd argue that the majority of those who say, we'll see what happens, don't come back. 
And by the way, the border's still closed, so there's no new families coming into our communities, into our international schools, into the chambers of commerce, into my business. And that's it's just becoming the self-reinforcing negative cycle. And it's it's the topic of daily conversation. The foreigners, I think, have been more patient through the process, but they're looking longer term about what the impacts will be. The Chinese are less patient, worried about right now, today, can I get out to buy vegetables? And probably a little bit less worried about the more macro level because they trust the government to pull the VAT lever to, to make real estate taxes go away for a while. Like They, they see the benefits of those. And so it's, it's two different approaches, but the water temperature is certainly rising. I was just going to say it's kind of ironic because, you know, we, uh, you know, that happened two years ago, uh, kind of what, what Richard has been saying. And there was an exodus um, in, you know, and I, I also um, took my daughters to the U.S. Um, in February of two, 2020. And the irony of that was that uh, we ended up getting stuck in the U.S. for six months and uh, everything kind of shut down in uh, in the U.S., especially well in my home state of Massachusetts. Uh, so we were sheltering with my parents for six months, and finally, when we, you know, and my daughters were doing online education from twelve time zones away, which was <laughs> not easy. And then finally, when we were able to come back in September of two thousand twenty, uh, we really appreciated. You know, once we had gone through the. Uh, the two-week quarantine period, it was two weeks back then, we really appreciated the freedom that we had in China. For the past year and a half, it's been quite amazing what we've been able to do here in China uh, because of the zero COVID policy. But now things are changing. Uh, obviously, the, the uh, you know COVID is changing. Um, and so I do think we are at a, at a threshold. Uh, and China does have to make some very tough decisions in the near future and so do people living here the decisions the easy ones are gone in many ways and i think bryce to the, to your question about which way works better individual responsibility or the government you know taking a very heavy fist and saying lockdown for two months honestly we've been talking about for the last two years the fact that the chinese government had that heavy hammer that that's what saved them from what we saw in many other countries. And I'm inclined to believe that is the most effective way. If you want to keep it to zero, that's the most effective way. I guess the question is, is zero realistic? And is zero something that if you get back down to now, that there's a greater benefit in 18 months or 24 months? Or do we end up in a cycle of every three months going through these two-week, four-week, six-week semi-ish lockdowns? I, I I struggle with that one because I'm starting to see a lot of civil disobedience of people. Like I'm not going to put on my mask. I'm not going to do this. And it, it, I'm sorry. It reminds me of when I was back in the States and people started to make that little grumbling and that grumbling turned into a, a movement against anything that was, that was rational at the individual level, no matter what the government was saying. And I think that that's, that's probably a big concern for them up in Beijing right now. Like how do we communicate this? How do we keep people on board with whatever we do. And if we don't do it the right way, what's the outcome? And there's a lot of downside to, I think, to any decision that they're, that they're considering. So I, I don't know. I think the easiest way is they should just do a two week lockdown, but does that make it any easier in October? I, I don't think it does. I think eventually you have to 
face up to this virus and just take it in the chin. The question is, what, what's the softest, what's the way that you can gl make the blow glance and just have the least amount of pain versus a, a true four to six month shutdown like you're seeing in, you know, in other parts of the world? As foreigners or as, uh, as expats in Shanghai or in China, we really don't have a choice, right? Or we rather, we do have a choice. We have the choice of leaving. <laughs> Whereas Chinese people, obviously, you know, they don't have any other place to go. So I can, I can, I can completely uh, understand. The fact that we're going through this now is already a, a sign that, that China has won because the Omicron virus is less lethal than, than Delta and the previous ones. So, and I think that's the one frustration people have. It is that people are not, if I have to be so bold and, and direct, people are not falling, dying on the streets. This is not Wuhan in January, 2020. People are generally asymptomatic. But look at Hong Kong. You know, Hong Kong and mainland China have a very similar vaccination rate among their elderly. And Hong Kong has the highest death rate that's been recorded the entire COVID experience. And I think, if I remember correctly, it's a 10% death rate for those who are not vaccinated over the age of 80. It could be 60, but I'm, I'm confident that it's definitely 80. Um, so if you think about that death rate in China, I mean, Shanghai is 20, 25% over 85 or over 80. Like, those are that's real numbers of sick and dying elderly that they've got a battle because they've got, what is it? 50 or 60% aren't vaccinated here with any shots and they're working on that. But that's for us who are younger and have a double vaccination, even of the Chinese vaccine, they're showing 3% severity of cases. So yeah, it's, it's not what it was in Wuhan, but for those unvaccinated, it's still really, really risky. One of the thoughts that, uh, as you guys were talking, one of the thoughts that came to my mind, and maybe we kind of touched on it, was what would the alternative be uh, if absent of, you know, uh, dynamic zero or, or, or zero policy on COVID? I think it's okay for there to be resistance, or I think there's it's okay for many people to be upset um, over over the lockdowns, whether they're two or two plus 12 or two plus two plus two plus two. I think the alternative to that would be a lot worse. I also think that, it, you know, if the government, as a result, I think the way it would be communicated, or at least the way it would be interpreted by people at large is that there, you know, that the government hasn't done enough to control COVID or the, or the circulation of COVID. And, and I think the alternative would be even worse. So, I mean, I'm not the Chinese government or the municipal government, but I think having a municipal and a compound by compound kind of strategy just makes it easier to communicate and easier to manage and control the information that's shared with the populace that live within those communities. And we're talking about thousands of people over here as well. The zero COVID strategy can't work in the long run. So there has to be, there has to be a transition to a new way. I mean, there are, they've already started that. They're, they're well on their way. Um, but I think that uh, right now, as Richard said, the, the potential consequences are so high if they were to relax the hold on the, on the population. China just does not have the healthcare infrastructure. And, you know, China is, what is it, one-sixth of the world population is Chinese. I mean, it's a huge country, 1.4 billion people. It's an enormous country. So even if just a tiny percentage of them had health problems, it's still, 
it, it's it's still a massive, massive uh, issue. So there are no easy answers here. The reason why I knew it was going to be really serious, and actually I went out and bought weights. We went to Costco the week before, like the whole thing came in, was there all the videos being shown around of Shanghai building the temporary hospitals. The, this is serious. And I think they know, and keep in mind, Shanghai and Beijing have the best hospital networks in the country. You get down to Kunshan, you go from Kunshan out to the next, you know, to the next level down from there. You know, these cities don't have much expertise in managing this, but more than that, they also don't have the beds. And I saw a statistic that basically showed that China, even with 20% of the world's population or one sixth, you know, they have something like a 10th of the ICU beds that the U S has. And the U S just got overrun challenge is how to navigate all these different gravitational points that you can't really get away from. Like gravity is truth and they're going to have to open up at some point. The question is, should they get more vaccinated elderly? Should they allow the foreign vaccines? And do they find a way that each city can kind of open up on its own and just let it run rampant, but it's without affecting the whole country? Like what are the stages to open that they have? And what are the different ways that they'll try it? I mean, I think having these, individual antigen tests go out that like, okay, that's one way. But again, they've only done that once and we have no indication they're going to do it again. If there was a two week lockdown in Shanghai, the impact on the supply chain would be global because so much stuff that's sold at Walmart is coming out of, out of the Shanghai port. They would have global implications. Wider from this, I think the other thing that really China struggles with is separate from COVID itself, all the other externalities, all the other impacts. So the Shanghai port, the Shenzhen port, Tianjin port, you know, the economy needs to keep going somehow. And so how do you keep that going while trying to, to open up COVID? It, it, man, I mean, respect to those who got to make these decisions. It's, it's not easy. So one of the one of the one of the mainstays of the of the program is a, is something that we call the A B test. A stands for Ali and B for Bryce. Um, it's a it's a fire shot question, so we just throw out a bunch of questions today. We're gonna Richard, you've already gone through this, so we're not going to be addressing you today. All the questions today are for you, Andy. Um, and there's probably about twi- not ten questions, but ten statements I'm going to make. There's going to be two choices. Pick one, and then whatever comes straight to mind, feel free to answer right back. Um, so, uh, Lu Xun or uh, Gao Xinjian? Do I need to explain or just <laughs> tell you the answer? You can if you'd like. Yeah, feel free. Oh, well, I mean, Lu Xun, the, the father of modern Chinese literature, no question there. Jay Z Club or the Blue Note? Uh, definitely the Jay Z Club. And uh, there are a bunch of different Jay Z Clubs. Well, the Jay Z Club is a long standing jazz club in Shanghai, it's been around for. Um, almost 20 years now and it and it has been the most important club in the history of jazz in modern shanghai and in china i would i would dare say um and it's and it's still going strong uh bob dylan or neil young well bob dylan for sure i mean <laughs> that no question there <laughs> shanghai city life or kunshan country life oh as much as i enjoy the the lakes and the uh, the tranquil life of Quinshan. I'm kind of a city boy at heart, so uh, Shanghai, that's my town. Bill Belichick or Coach K? Uh, well, I would get in serious serious trouble if I didn't say Coach K. 
you know, I work for Duke. Miles Davis or Herbie Hancock? That's a tough one. I love them both. Um, but because I'm a pianist, I would have to go with Herbie. Jonathan Spence or Orville Shell? Oh, that's easy for me. Definitely Jonathan Spence. I mean, <clears throat> our grandest historian of China, such a huge influence uh, on the field and on my uh, joining this field of modern Chinese history. Uh, Boston clam chowder or mala tang? Uh, it's very easy for me. <laughs> Even though I come from Boston, I was never been a fan of uh, of shellfish and uh, shelled, you know, mollusks. So I'd have to go with the mala tang there. <laughs> That's great, awesome. Well, Richard, Andy, thanks for being on the show. It's been really great. And as I mentioned in the beginning, we'll post the links to both Richard's consulting business as well as Andy's two books uh, that I mentioned. Put those in the show notes. Thank you for joining us on today's episode. Join us next week for another exciting show. And until then, have a great day.